I'm going to read today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And attend to your own business. And work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Two Sundays ago, we concluded Paul's teaching on sanctification with an emphasis on living a morally sanctified life. And as I pointed out at that time, we spent two Sundays on that. Any act of immorality is a selfish act. And today we are moving into the next thing that Paul is talking about. And this topic is love. Love for one another. Love for one another within the body of Christ. Which when lived out as it is intended to be lived out, would certainly prevent any immorality from taking place within our fellowship or within the larger body of Christ. With that in mind, let's pray, and then we will look at these verses. Father, you are love. You are the one who teaches us to love. And you are the one who shows us what love is. You have shown us the challenges of love. You have shown us the faithfulness of love. You have shown us what it means to love even when it is exceedingly costly to ourselves. By your Spirit, speak to us today about love for each other. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul begins verse 9 with, Now as to the love of the brethren. As Christians, loving one another within the body of Christ, be it our church or the church universal, Barb and I have been blessed with the opportunity to go overseas We've met believers in other countries. They're not part of our fellowship, but we have the opportunity to love them and they've had the opportunity to love us. So loving each other within the body of Christ is not just loving each other in this room or on Zoom. It's loving all believers everywhere. And certainly we live out the reality of that first and foremost with those that are in our immediate vicinity, and that's the people in this room. This kind of love is one of the most significant marks of a spiritually healthy Christian and a spiritually healthy church. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, 
By this, that is, by your love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. It's an identifying mark. And God's word says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. That we have been, in much of today's language, we've been born again. We've become followers of Christ. We are believers. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. This is a telltale sign. He who does not love abides in death. Now we're often told that love is a choice, and it is. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, though, is more than a choice. It is a choice. But it also is the will of God for us, just as our sanctification is God's will for us. And as you may recall, when we speak of God's will, we are speaking of what God wants, what he commands, or what he requires. So this is a choice that is not an option. We see the truth of such a command in John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus says to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. So the commandment is love one another, and the standard is even as I have loved you. And as if to reinforce this message, John records two other sayings of Christ that are very similar to the one I just read. The first is in John chapter 15, verse 12, where Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. And the second time that uh, John records this additional statement is in John chapter 15, verse 17, This I command you, that you love one another. And I just bring those statements by Christ to your attention just to reinforce that this is the will of God. It's his command. It's his requirement of us. The book of Acts gives us some practical examples of how the first Christians lived out Christ's command to love each other. And we read this in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47. And I want to read these words from Acts. It begins here, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That all things in common means that they treated their personal possessions as if they belonged to the community, as if it were the community possessions now. And they began, verse 45, and they began selling their property and possessions. So they not only treated what they had as if it belonged to everybody else in the body of Christ at that time in Jerusalem, but if they had possessions, maybe jewelry, uh, something else of value that they could sell or they had property they were selling their possessions and were sharing the cash received with everyone who had need day by and by the way Ananias and Sapphira got into trouble over this idea because they went and sold a piece of property 
held back a portion of it for themselves, which they were free to do. They did nothing wrong up to that point. Their failure, their wrong, was that they went to the apostles and they said, we sold property A and here's the money from it, as if they were giving all of it to the church to be used amongst all the believers. When in fact, they had kept some of it for themselves. And it was that lie, it was that deception that God was upset about. Continuing on in verse 46, day by day, so not only were they sharing their possessions with each other and sharing their money with each other, but day by day they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. In other words, they were living together in such love, harmony, and sharing that onlookers were impressed. They were favorably impressed. And they thought pretty highly of these Christians on those first days. I'm not sure we can live this out ourselves, given all the other things that we're involved in, and I don't know how long they lived this out. But this was an example of the early believers living out Christ's command to love one another. Paul gives some specific examples of how to live out this kind of love in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. And I'm beginning with verse 9 because it's a very profound statement that gives uh, understanding to the rest of it. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So think about that statement within the the, the the boundaries of loving one another within the body of Christ. Let love be without hypocrisy. Think about all the discrimination that took place within, that has taken place, still is taking place within the body of Christ. I grew up in an atmosphere of Protestantism, which believed that all Catholics were not saved and going to hell. My guess is there has been and will always be some Catholics that are genuine born-again believers. In the early days of Redford Church, I went door-to-door evangelizing with a Catholic priest and uh, two ministers from the Lutheran Church. All three of them were solid believers. That Catholic priest held revivals at his Catholic church there on Five Mile in Brightmoor. He actually invited me to speak in one of his services, which I did. And we had him speak at ours. I'm only saying that to point out that God has people everywhere. Just think about the discrimination. Let love be without hypocrisy. How easy it is to discriminate against people who are different. May hold a bit of a different theology or a bit of a different uh, teaching on this topic or that topic. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And then he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. We're not just serving each other. We are serving the Lord. We're doing this as unto the Lord. This is for the honor of God, 
the joy of God, the glory of God. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, and contributing to the needs of the saints, and finally practicing hospitality. Well, they're just some good examples of loving each other within the body of Christ. And we learn from church history, along with Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.31, that one of the manifestations of Christians loving each other was that they were all treated as equals. Apparently that commitment to treat all as equals didn't last as long as we would have liked. But it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman, a slave or a free person, a highly cultured Jew or Greek, or if you were a barbarian. It didn't matter if you were circumcised or uncircumcised. If you were a believer in Jesus Christ and you were part of the church, you were treated as an equal. Church history tells us that some of the ministers in the early church churches were slaves, not free men. They selected those who were equipped, who were taught of God, who had the ability from God to give the leadership, and it didn't matter if they were slave or free. Moving on to verse 9, the other half of 9, which could appear to be a new subject, but it isn't. Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you concerning loving the brethren. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now it's easy to take this taught by God as we should be, as they say, lone rangers. We don't need anybody else to teach us. Uh, We'll just be taught by God and that'll be it. Well, before we give that serious consideration, I want to uh, pause for a moment and give you just some history, what I think is interesting history, uh, related to the words are taught by God. Notice the word by there in the uh, English translation of the Greek New Testament. And I want to talk about this because here in Thessalonians, that taught by God is a translation of just one Greek word, theodidactus. That's just one Greek word. Now, there is no known use of this one Greek word prior to Paul's use of it here in verse 9. And this is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. So where did Paul get the word? We don't really know. However, a similar use of two Greek words are found in the Greek Old Testament. First, uh, or, or, yes, first in Isaiah 54, 13, And then it's found in a uh, quote from the Old Testament in John chapter 6, verse 45. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we read in Isaiah 54, 13, And I will cause, God says, all your sons to be taught of God. Not by God, but be taught of God. And the words there, taught of God, come from two Greek words, the dactos theo. And then, of course, in John chapter 6.45, it's a quote of that, and it's the same two Greek words. So where did Paul get his word? Well, 
to me, the interesting part of looking at this word historically is that it's very probable that Paul simply put took those two words, didactos, theos, switched them around, put them together, and made them one word. Theodidactus, taught by God. All right, with this uh, history of the Greek word in mind, I want us to consider the various ways that God teaches us and how he teaches us with or without a pastor or teacher or leader. Because the reality is, whether you are in solitary confinement or being taught by, say, a mature, biblically wise teacher who's able to apply the word of God in very practical ways, and whether you have a Bible or only have nature, your conscience and your intellect, God is your teacher. It is God who teaches us. For example, God spoke to Moses mouth to mouth and face to face, the scripture says. Two examples are God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. We know from Numbers 12, 6 through 8, 1 Kings 3, 5, Acts 2, verse 17, and there are other scriptures that say the same thing, that God speaks, directs, and enlightens through visions and dreams. We even have in our day, uh, Ramadan is coming up, and one of the things that we've encouraged you to pray for, and uh, the Ramadan book encourages us to pray for, is that Muslims would have visions and dreams about Jesus Christ during Ramadan, and that would call them to faith. Historically, in the scriptures, God used visions and dreams to speak to people, to teach them, to show them what they needed to do, point out the way. When speaking through Jeremiah, God said he would put his law within us and write it on our heart. How he does that? I don't know. That's a mystery. But he talks about that in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. And we are able to draw on this knowledge, this understanding, this awareness that God puts in us. And we can draw on it for daily living. In Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks about unbelievers, Gentiles, those who are not Jews, who do not have the law, if they live as if they have the law, because it's written in their heart, then it is as if it's a law unto themselves. That's put there by God, somehow, some way. Both the Old Testament and New Testament contain examples of God speaking and directing and teaching his people through angels. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul says God has put an awareness of his existence along with some understanding of his truth within us and that God reveals or speaks to us about his invisible attributes his eternal power, and his divine nature through that which he has created. It's another way that God speaks to us. Paul goes further with this kind of speaking and teaching of God in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, where we learn that when, and I'm going to use unbelievers in place of the term Gentiles, because that's what Gentiles essentially means, and I'm going to use the word Bible in place of the word law. 
So this is a David Bain paraphrase. Bear with me. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. When unbelievers who do not have a Bible do instinctively the things taught in the Bible, these, not having a Bible, are a Bible to themselves, in that they show the truths of the Bible written in their hearts, their conscience-bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. In other words, when they think about what they're doing, when they think about what they're saying, when they think about what they've done, according to what is written in their hearts, according to their conscience, they're able to say that was good or that was bad. I should have done that or I shouldn't have done that. In John chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. So Jesus taught, as we well know, not only his disciples, but the crowds as well. But then he goes on to say, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So it wasn't just up to the disciples to remember everything. Jesus taught. That would have been a lot of remembering. And I suppose if they all sat down together for a couple days and tried to recall and piece together, they could have done a pretty good job. But Jesus said that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He will give the Holy Spirit who will not only teach them all things, but bring to their remembrance all that he taught them. And finally, though God is free to teach us in any other ways he chooses, we do know, both from scripture and from life, that God teaches us through his word, 2 Timothy 3.16, his apostles, his prophets, his evangelists, his pastors and teachers, Ephesians 4.11, our parents, siblings, godly books, and I'm going to include Christian music. God speaks to us through these things. And there may even be other things that aren't included here. I'll leave that to you. My point is, is that Paul's statement about no need for anyone to write you because you are taught by God is very true, but it fits into a context. It doesn't stand alone. And that context includes that the, the very fact that the Thessalonians were taught by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and were receiving letters from Paul that continued to teach them, continued to exhort them, continued to point the way. So Paul is not saying this, as it were, in a vacuum, as if they didn't need any other teaching. But he is saying that In spite of all the other teachings, God was teaching them, reinforcing to them, promoting with them the very truth that they were to love one another. Verse 10. For indeed you do practice love toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. So they not only loved the believers that were in their own town, they were caring about the believers on the larger scale, just as we are invited to do. We just had, um, oh, the persecuted Christians. Uh, We were invited to watch a program. Yes, uh, the martyrs, thank you. 
um, Voice of the Martyrs, uh, we were invited to watch that. Why? It gives us an opportunity to care about believers in other places. Again, Barb and I have traveled to be with our missionaries overseas. Why are they there? To raise up believers and then to care about them. And we care about them. We, we're invited in our Redford highlights to pray for them. So, not only in their own town, but all Macedonia. And then he goes on to say, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. We've come across that previously, the excel still more statement. And I just want to point out that Paul begins this section by commending their growth, their commitment, and their practice of loving one another, but he doesn't ever suggest that it's good enough. He urges them to excel still more. It is one thing to know what to do. It's another thing to do it. And quite another to be committed to improving and maturing so that you progressively do it better and better. It is one thing to know what to do. I believe that all of us know what to do pretty much in everything that we encounter. Yeah, there's learning to be done, there's growth, I admit all of that. But right and wrong, most of us know what we ought to do. It's another thing to actually do it. We know what to do, but we don't always do it. We don't always want to do it. In fact, we want to do something different. But it is quite another to be committed to improving and maturing so that you progressively do it better and better. Progressively loving one another better and better is what it would have meant for the Thessalonian believers to excel still more. Not to stay where they were, but to progressively do it better and better. That's what excel still more means. It wasn't that they weren't loving one another. They were. But Paul said you can do it even better. And the same is true for us today. Someone asked, when have we loved enough? When have we loved enough? When is enough enough? In my opinion, as long as we can excel still more, then we have not gotten to the place of having loved enough. If we can excel still more, we haven't gotten to the place of loving enough. Now, if that answer is not good enough, then consider this. Until we love each other with the same quality of love and to the same degree of love with which Christ has loved us, we have not gotten to the place of having loved enough. We could excel still more. Is this about being perfect? No. It's about growing and maturing. It's about improving. It's about progressing. And so as believers, I'm encouraging all of us to be committed to loving every member of the body of Christ as Christ loved us. Let us make that the standard, Christ's love for us, and use that in trying to figure out how to love the people around us. All right, from this exhortation to excel still more in loving each other, 
Paul proceeds to a list of three specific and practical ways to show love for one another. And to me, it's interesting to note that each one of these three ways is built on the qualities of humility, respect for others, and being responsible. Humility, respect, and responsibility. And the three ways Paul promotes for showing love are, one, lead a quiet life. Two, attend to your own business. And three, work with your hands. Now, this was a young church. They were new believers. And apparently, all three of these were issues that were getting in the way of loving one another. So verse 11. Make it your ambition, Paul writes, that is, intentionally, purposely, eagerly lead a quiet life. So what is a quiet life? Well, Paul does not clearly state what he means when he says lead a quiet life. He just says lead a quiet life. So that leaves us to try and apply this truth the best way we can. And I think the best way we can is to take life as it is today. Now, just a quick bit of history. We do know that the Thessalonian believers were living in a culture and a time when Christians were looked down on, discriminated against, mistreated, and persecuted. So think of our own culture, our own nation, and just the last four years. Putting ourselves in their place, we can only imagine what some of us, maybe some of us in this room, what some of us might be saying on public forums like Facebook and Twitter about the unjust and cruel treatment of Christians by liberal politicians, city leaders, businessmen, and neighbors. Add to that the exaggerated views on substantiated opinions, false beliefs, derogatory comments, demonizing of opponents, and loud, passionate, argumentative discussions between some of us and those who support mistreating Christians. Imagine those discussions. And add to that speaking disrespectfully about the governor or president and joining in on the attack of the Capitol. So I'm just presenting this as examples of not leading a quiet life. In writing to the church in Rome, Paul speaks of what a quiet life could look like. We read this in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 19. Think about the mindset that you have to have. Think about the self-discipline and control you have to have to lead this kind of quiet life. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Imagine that. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. 
but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't think that you're the wise one here. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Have some sense of what the culture is doing and what's reasonable within that culture to show respect for everybody. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Quiet life. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. All right, the important truth here is that love is humble. Love shows respect for others. Love is not derogatory. However, if we only treat those inside the church with humility and respect, and we do not treat those outside the church in the same way, we do not yet know the true meaning of love or humility or respect. Moving on, Paul writes, and attend to your own business. That doesn't mean, you know, focus on your job or the uh, business that you've begun. Peter puts it this way, same idea, don't be a troublesome meddler. 1 Peter 4, 15. Now Paul does elaborate on attending to your own business in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13, where he speaks against going from house to house, gossiping, being a busybody, and talking about things that don't concern you or aren't any of your business or that you don't need to know. That's quite a list. All right, what is a busybody? A busybody is someone who pries into other people's personal lives and affairs by asking questions or pushing for more information, either from them themselves or from other people who know them. They just, they're they're primed into places they don't really belong. A gossip is someone who takes what they have learned from prying and shares it with others who have no need to know or right to know. And I want to point out that there is no love for anyone but yourself when prying, gossiping, or talking about things that don't concern you. And so when these kind of things are happening within the body of Christ, and sadly they have, sadly they still do. When these kinds of things are happening within the body of Christ, it's a sign that love for one another is not in that place. And that those who participate in such behaviors, they're not loving their brothers and sisters in Christ, but themselves. And they are not caring for the honor of God or the reputation of the church. They're just caring for the information 
and the thrill of knowing. The last thing Paul says is in these three things, and work with your hands just as we commanded you. So Paul knew this was possibly coming. My guess is he saw what was happening in the Jerusalem church by then. Things were uh, beginning to shape up and reality was starting to strike. So he says, just as we commanded you, we commanded you when we uh, taught you the gospel and you came to Christ, we commanded you to work with your hands. So working with your hands in this context means to provide for yourself through some form of gainful employment or some form of business or farming rather than looking to others in the church to provide for you. Now remember that when Paul wrote this, it was common for believers to treat their possessions as if they belonged to the whole community. This was the mindset of the early church of the day. And there were those uh, who benefited from that because they lacked. They were in genuine need. However, as with many good things, there are those who will take advantage, including those who consider themselves Christians, even though such behavior is selfish. It appears that this kind of selfishness within the church got so bad that by the time Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, and we don't know the period of time between the first letter and the second that is in our Bible. But by the time he wrote Second Thessalonians, he said in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and I'm going to read this. When we were with you, Paul writes, we gave you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. In other words, if he's not willing to work, to make an honest effort to provide for himself and others who have need, then he is not to share in the food or the financial resources made available by the church to those in need. And verse 11 For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. I mean, they saw the golden egg and they were willing to take advantage. An opportunity to have your needs met without any effort on your part. Now such persons, verse 12, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, now such persons we command, we command you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat your own bread. All three of these things have to do with loving one another or the failure to love one another. Finishing up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says this, Do these three things, quiet life, don't be a busybody, tend your own business, work with your own hands, 
do these three things so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Paul concludes this section by pointing out that our behavior toward one another within the church has a significant effect on how we behave towards those outside the church. One of the arguments I am certain every parent in this room has heard from teenage kids. I don't treat other people this way after they've treated you this way in your your own home. That is not true. You don't change your character when you walk out the door. And we don't change our character when we walk out of this building. We are who we are. If we are irresponsible, lazy, selfish, and willing to take advantage of our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will be the same way toward those outside the church. If we won't do good work, When serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we won't do good work when we are in the world. If we won't be responsible in keeping our word to each other within the body of Christ, we will not be responsible in keeping our word out in the world. Loving one another is important. God commands it. And beyond that, Here in verse 12, Paul points out it affects how we treat people outside the body of Christ. You see, unbelievers will not only look at our behavior toward each other. They will look at our business dealings, our work ethic, our family life, our social interactions, our internet interactions, and our political actions. They will see us for what we are. And sadly, within the church, we, we will see each other for who we are. It got to the place in my own life, back when we were part of Northwest Church. And I'm not blaming Northwest Church. I'm not saying that they had a unique culture. This was just a common, regular church. But it got to the place where I said to my own wife, we are not going to hire any more Christians to do work because their work is no good. I'm not going to trust them. I'm not going to give them my money because the work is no good. What a sad day. That ought not to be. The world looks at us and we look at each other. Paul's exhortation is, let us love one another. That requires being responsible, being respectful, caring, sharing, forgiving, walking alongside, being patient with. And so I want to end with Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that is 
Let us love one another within the church and let us live godly towards those outside the church so that those in the church and those outside the church may see our good deeds, your good deeds, the way you live, and glorify your Father who is in heaven.